Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Last weekend, a Sydney criminal named Warren Lanfranchi was shot and killed by police. A meeting arranged in a back street in the inner Sydney suburb of Chippendale last Saturday afternoon. Lanfranchi hit by two shots, one in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. One of our earliest episodes of Australian True Crime featured an interview with Deborah Crivershow, who helped us to talk about the life and times of her sister, Sally Ann Huckstep. I vividly remember sitting on the couch next to my mum on a Sunday night in 1981 and watching Sally Ann tell Ray Martin 
on an explosive episode of 60 Minutes that high-ranking and respected members of the New South Wales Police Force were in fact corrupt. Further, she accused them of murdering her boyfriend in broad daylight in a Sydney street. Sally Ann was a heroin addict and sex worker, so her claims were met with suspicion, to put it mildly. But history has proven she was an honest and brave whistleblower. She was the first person to speak out publicly about the truth of Roger Rogerson, who at the time was on a trajectory to the very top job in New South Wales policing. Sally Ann told the world that he was a crooked cop in business with drug dealers and killers. Rogerson, who is now in prison for the murder of Jamie Gow, received 13 awards for bravery during his policing career. Sally Ann would never receive a single accolade for her bravery. We'll pay homage to Sally Ann with her sister Deborah later in this episode, but first, we hear from former New South Wales policeman turned journalist and author Duncan McNabb, who's written extensively about Rogerson and his associates. Always fascinates me that Roger's career as a crook ends pretty much because of the involvement of a 20-year-old Southeast Asian University student. I mean, Roger's a notable bigot. I think it shits him that yeah. this is what's got him. Yeah, he's a 20-year-old kid. He's from an affluent Hong Kong family. He's at university studying business, and here's Roger. And this kid pretty much brings about his downfall. Jamie decided that the straight life, he didn't want to go into business. He didn't want to go into the family business. He didn't really want to finish his university business course either. He thought he was smarter than friends he'd known <laughs> who'd been locked up for rather large drug deals. He thought, like a lot of these kids, I can do it better. Hey, it's a good life. Chance of being arrested isn't that high. Money is terrific. It's and the a big lifestyle. market, isn't it? Australia's yeah. a big market for drugs. I think I still think we top the world amphetamine per head usage. So, yeah. you know, it's a huge market. He's tapped into sources through his um, connections in Hong Kong. They can bring the stuff in easy, cheap and fast. Um, he's looking around for distribution networks in Sydney to get his own business going. Quite entrepreneurial, our Jamie. And he said sadly to one of his mates that he always wanted to be a gangster. And a couple oh. of days before he died, he said, said to them the impending deal with the two old fellows that this would change his life forever. Well, it certainly did. Oh. And it's a really sad conversation. He's 20 years old. He, wouldn't, he knows nothing. Mm. Um, and here he is, these two wizened, old, highly experienced coppers thinking, look at this, a callow youth. And that's, I think, one of the reasons they decided that rather than go into business with him, we'll just kill him and take the drugs. Really? Yeah. That's simple. It's so there was no – I remember there were rumours that Jamie had informed on his gang. Yeah. There was sort of this idea that it was all all Asian kind of drama and that Roger and uh, McNamara had just been called in to do the job in the end. Yeah, there's, there's lovely stories, and I think some of them mm. may have come from Roger's camp at that stage. Right. Um, the trial was full of these – the triad, the triad, yes. the triad, and everyone's whispering triad. <laughs> Yeah, well, Jamie obviously had triad connections. That's how he got the drugs. Yeah. But this drama unfolding in the Sydney street with triads prowling looking for Jamie Gow, I think that's all nonsense. Right. Um, Jamie had the drugs. They'd given to him on, on account, by the way, which is not uncommon in the criminal world. All Jamie had to do was take the drugs, pick up the money from the old boys, and off we go. We might have a new distribution network. Roger was extremely well connected with the outlaw biker gangs, particularly the banditos and the rebels. You know, very slick, very efficient distributors of these things. So we and could just get reliable. the drugs for free. Yeah. And Roger just, I, I reckon Roger just thought, oh, this is too hard. We'll just take the money. 
and they thought that if they did it properly, no one would know what happened to Jamie Gow. He joined the ranks of the missing. And you're right, they had planned it meticulously apart from the CCTV camera. So what was the plan? I I think it originally started as a drug deal and they'd set up a new distribution network using Roger's mates and Glenn gets Jamie on site to source it. Yeah, great business. Um, at some point, probably around about March or April, I think Roger's just thought, well, I don't want to do this anymore, but he, you know, well, let's pick up five hundred or $600,000, which is what it was worth to him. Wow. Um, and, you know, if the kid doesn't want to play ball, we'll just get rid of him. So we lure him to the storage place. We've got the shed all ready to go. We're going to get him in here and shoot him. Then what? Then we just dispose of the... They'd already prepared for the disposal of the body. They had the tarp to wrap him in the surfboard bag. What they hadn't got was... um, They hadn't quite worked out how to get him from the back of the Falcon Ute that they'd bought for this job under a bodgy name. Um, They hadn't quite worked out the logistics of lifting the body from the the back of the panel... uh, Station wagon, I'm sorry, into the boat because the boat was higher than they anticipated. So they have to whip down to a higher place and get a block and tackle. God. And then they wrap poor Jamie up, drop him in the boat. They fail to put sufficient weight on him to make sure he sinks. Um, and I think the most telling moment of that entire afternoon when they're doing this preparation, and it's the moment the, dru- the jury actually looked and thought, oh, and you could see their faces. When the two old boys hop in the lift, they've got the kid in the boat already, they get a six-pack of beer out and they're in the lift and the CCTV camera records them in the lift having a chat and Glenn's got the six-pack and they're going upstairs for a beer. And that's the moment the jury turned, I reckon. Mm. Just that really simple thing and the cold-bloodedness. Um, and then the next day they went out, dropped the body off the boat and, of course, as things happen, if you don't weight them down sufficiently, they come back up again. Two yeah. experienced detectives should have known better. I think Roger skimped on the chain because it was expensive. <laughs> And then fishermen found something bobbing in a tarp in the water? Yeah, poor guy's gone out fishing in the morning. He's about 2.5 k's off Cronulla. He sees a white foot in a Reebok. That's what stands out. About 10 years ago, when I first wrote about Roger, I'd sort of, I'd seen him off into the, into the, into retirement in a tinny, with his grandkids throwing a line over the side, having a cold beer. Boy, did I get that wrong. But here he is in 2014, teamed up with a bloke we all thought was as honest as the day was long. It turns out he wasn't. Um, Roger, infirm, but still sharp. I mean, the mind was like a bloody razor, and I saw him during the court case. No detail missed him. Yeah. Uh, he was taking notes. He was engaged throughout the entire thing. But here he is. He's got uh, – he can barely hold – He's at the pub with his drinking circle. They would have to go and get the round of beers from him because Roger couldn't quite physically deal with carrying the tray of beers out from the bar to the table. But as they also said, uh, Roger could pick up a schooner glass or I think in Victoria it's a pot. Pot glass, pot yeah. Pot glass. And he could still hold it firmly even though it took him two hands sometimes. Pretty much the same as hanging onto a gun, unfortunately. I guess, but it's just, you're right. I mean, it's silly. Anyone can murder someone with a gun, but it's so hard to believe these two guys were such a match for this fit 20-year-old. But I guess they just had the experience and the brains. This kid didn't know what he was walking into, did he? This kid had no clue. He, he thought he was going into a genuine drug deal. He had the 2.78 or just on three kilograms of ice. And he thought the two old blokes were going to bring with him around about the five to $600,000 in cash. And he must have felt so safe because they were two old blokes. Yeah. 
two old blokes, and one, his relationship with Roger's co-accused, Glenn McNamara, was very close. They even had pet names for each other. Glenn was referred to by Jamie Gow as son, and he called Jamie Gow mum. So you've got this really bizarre relationship between two people, and then enter Roger. Uh-huh. Um, so Jamie was probably feeling reasonably secure when he went into that shed. Uh, what he didn't expect was Roger to pull out the pistol, according to Glenn McNamara, mm-hmm. and then just shoot him. Is it true that the shed was already covered in plastic when Jamie walked in so as to help with the cleanup? It was. They'd prepped it the day before and they'd been there a little bit um, in the about half an hour before the killing. Yeah. So the shed was ready to go. They got a space cleared. They'd done. They'd actually planned this crime quite well, with one notable exception. Yes. They just missed the first CCTV camera. Right, and it's not the first time that CCTV has done Roger in. Roger's Roger's got a long history. His first uh, brush was uh, back in gee whiz, the mid eighties when he was um, caught in a bank depositing $110,000 into an account not in his name, and he actually turns around and is captured in the bank's CCTV, which for a bloke who worked at the armed hold-up squad is pretty damn stupid. Isn't it? And for a smart guy, it's so strange. Because in those days, a lot of our listeners won't even understand how that's possible, but in those days, people had multiple accounts in different names. Yeah, we didn't have the 100 points in those days. No, we didn't. Walk, walk in with a slightly dodgy driver's licence and sure. Right. Uh, and he got caught again in uh, 1999 when he was um, being investigated for um, handing off kickbacks to get contracts for work. And Roger hopped in the witness box, command performance ready to go, tells a whole pack of stuff. The barrister reassure, gets him to reassure that, yes, this is 100% accurate. And they just push the play button and they've got hundreds of hours of tapes of Roger. And he was proved to be an absolute liar simply by pushing the play button. And that was his second outing with um, electronic <sighs> surveillance. Yeah, he just gets—he's arrogant. So when was he? When did he become f- disgraced former detective, <laughs> Roger Rogerson, uh, which he called himself with some sort of pride for many years? He, he's a—he's a lovely media performer. Yes, he, the first step towards disgrace was when he shot a guy called Warren Land Franchi, mm. a drug dealer. Um, what he didn't know when he shot Warren, Warren Lanfranch, he was at Warren's girlfriend, Sally Ann Huckstep, who he just dismissed as being, oh. Oh, she's a heroin, heroin addict and a prostitute. She doesn't rate. Well, she did rate. She was incredibly bright and utterly fearless. Well, and this story is actually incredible, isn't it? Because in the first instance, he murders Lanfranchi in the street in Sydney in the middle of the day. He has, was it 16 other police or something involved in this operation backing yeah. him up? Yeah, they're, they're in various perimeters extending through the neighbourhood. Yeah, and Len Franchi has uh, ripped off a drug dealer who was associated with Roger. Is that what happened? Yeah, ro- ro- supposedly Roger and a bloke called Nettie Smith, seriously bad crook, yeah. were running a heroin dip business. Len Franchi was getting the stuff from the watering it down again and just pocketing the profit. Yeah. Uh, the purchases went back to Roger and Nettie and said, hey, this stuff is crap. Um, so oh. they thought, well, Warren's been playing games. Warren also then took a pot shot at a policeman in the intervening period. Oh, that's right, a, a uniform guy, yeah, yeah. at an armed robbery. Warren was wild and mad. Mm. Um, so Roger made a decision to go and have a chat to Warren Lanfranchi and Warren ended up dead and Roger walked out. He thought he was going to be a hero mm. until Sally Ann popped up. Sally Ann is incredible. She is the girlfriend of Warren Lanfranchi. She is a sex worker and heroin addict. And far from, you know, shrinking into the background terrified, she goes on TV with mm. Ray Martin on 60 Minutes 
and tells him everything. I've been paying the police for 10 years. Um, what, as a prostitute? As a prostitute. My ex-husband was a criminal. I paid the police many times for him. I would have been quite happy to go on paying the police because it's a way of life and, you ha and it's the way you survive. But when the police become judge, jury and executioner, then somebody has to speak. Somebody has to come forward. Somebody has to start somewhere and stop it. This is real. This is not something that I have made up in revenge or in anger. This is just cold, bare fact. This is where Warren Lanfranchi was shot. There's no question that he was a drug dealer. But if you listen to his girlfriend, Sally Ann, and her stories about police corruption, she says that some police were also dealing in heroin. She tells one story about how Warren tried to set up what they call in the trade a rip-off, getting heroin without paying for it. But the twist is that even someone as experienced as Lanfranchi didn't always know who owned the heroin and when crooked cops were involved. It was terrifying and shocked. I mean, uh, it wasn't expected. Heroin rip-offs are a pretty common thing in the heroin business because a heroin dealer can't ring the police up and say, well, look, uh, you know, this guy just uh, ripped me off. Unless, of course, he's working for the police. Now, Detective Sergeant Rogerson, in his statement, says that he arranged the Saturday rendezvous so that Lanfranchi could give himself up. Sally Ann was with Lanfranchi the couple of hours before that rendezvous. She gives a quite different version of how it came about and the role that was played by the underworld go-betweens. What did you say to Warren? What, what were the last moments that you remember? I asked Warren to bring some flowers home for me. And he turned around and said, well, darling, you never know. You could be sending me flowers. I kissed him at the door and asked him what time he thought he'd be back because I'd be worried, you know. I mean, I didn't want him to go. You didn't want him to go? No. And uh, he said he didn't know what time he'd be home. But if he wasn't home by six o'clock, then I'd know he was, he'd been killed. Now, did he say that with a smile? Was he deadly serious? He was deadly serious. Sally, there are extraordinary charges. It's the sort of thing that uh, you expect to hear from Hollywood, not in suburban Australia. I know that, but it is happening here. And I know it sounds unbelievable, but it's real and it's happening. Do you think the police had no idea that you would take this line? Did you think, did they expect you to lie low, to keep quiet? Uh, I think the police thought that uh, I'd shut my mouth. As I've kept quiet all these years. Not only the police, but a lot of criminals are going to be uh, very upset with me. I've uh, upset the balance. Uh, a lot of detectives, I suppose, are going to be scared. It's going to be a lot harder for criminals to get
get away with a lot of things. But it had to be done. Yep, and she was exactly what Roger had not expected, articulate. She was bright. She made her points clearly and concisely, and she was on the front foot. Roger suddenly found himself in deep strife in the public arena, and Roger always loved the media as well. He's a bit of an old media tart, so finding he was being bested in the public view by Sally Ann Huckstep really hit him hard. Because he'd done well out of the media too, hadn't he? He'd been championed as a hero. Yeah, Roger was always I remember the the day after the Land Franchi shooting, the Daily Telegraph suddenly telegraph in Sydney led with high noon in Dangar Place. And Roger pitched himself as a Western hero. Um, it was just a remarkable moment. And Sally Ann, of course, in the sort of least unexpected thing that happened next is she's found floating in a pond in Centennial mm. Park in Sydney. Yep, she was in a park in Centennial Park in a pond early one morning. Roger, the night before, was alibied beautifully being on the other side of Sydney with a group of coppers having a drink. Almost deliberately, some would say. The three blokes, I'm told, who were responsible for it are still upright and walking around. Yeah, it's one of the intriguing unsolved crimes and one I really wish they'd sort out. It's an obvious conclusion in many ways and yet still sad and still feeling like, God, you can't beat these guys, no matter how brave you are and no matter how publicly you say what's going on, they'll still get you. Yep, and it finally took it took 30 years pretty much after Sally Ann was found dead for Roger to finally end up in the clink for something serious. Yes, although not for that. No, absolutely. So obviously there are probably lots and lots of crimes for which Roger will never see justice, but he is in prison now for the rest of his life, right? He's in for the rest of his life. He has a genuine life sentence, and given the fact he's now 75, his chance of seeing daylight again without handcuffs is minimal. Um, How do you reckon he's going in there? Because you wrote that the first time he went to prison, he was actually sort of relieved by how many other former coppers were in there and people he knew. I think he'll have a – he won't have a great time, but he'll be comfortable. They'll look after him because he's quite aged now, so he's in the aged care facility at Long Bay. He'll be telling stories. He'll be giving advice to other crooks as usual um, about how they might avoid being in jail, which always strikes me as being a bit bizarre. (laughs) Um, And he's a – He's got arthritis, but he's still a competent pianist, and I understand he's got a piano out there, and someone said he's been giving karaoke, playing for the karaoke teams out there. I had no idea they had an old-age facility at Long Bay Jail. I didn't either until someone said, that's where Roger is, and I thought, good. I know they've got a prison hospital, but it seems that once they get to a certain age, 70, 75, or infirmity, they're popped into this twilight home for criminals. God, that sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? It's certainly more than he offered his victims. Yeah, an acquaintance mum was out there recently and they spotted Roger and he was having a cup of tea, a scotch finger, reading the Daily Telegraph. It is a bit upsetting, isn't it, to think that he gets to live out his days that way? He's quite comfortable, yes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hello. Hello, Deborah. It's Michelle. How are you? Very good, thanks. How does it feel to have someone contact you out of the blue and say they want to talk about your sister? Um, it feels all right. Yeah, it's fine. I'm quite proud of it, so... I'm fine talking about her. Yes, we were very close. Yeah, very, very close. We're only 18 months apart in age. And growing up without uh, a mother in the... Uh, two girls become very close when they're the only females around. Sally-Anne was 20, 20 months old, 18 months older. I get the impression that Sally-Anne was one of those girls who um, sort of grew into her sexuality quite young, who realised that it was powerful and sort of reveled in it. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, she was a very, very attractive girl, very attractive. And I think she was mature beyond her years. She was powerful within herself anyway. Just, you know how some people, it's funny because she would come across very strong and in her personality and her awareness of herself. But really, she was really quite fragile. I mean, oftentimes those are the people who um, who feel like they need to appear strongest, aren't they? The ones who are actually trying to prevent other people from realising how fragile they are. Well, yes, it's bravado, as I would... Oh, that's what I would call it. She had that, um, like a mask she wore, of strength. And, and she was very strong, but she still had... She was quite fragile if you really knew her inside. The sex industry is a scary place. I mean, I worked as a brothel receptionist many years ago, so I'm not going to pretend I can relate to the life that Sally-Ann was living in the cross in the 70s, but um, it, I, it doesn't strike me as a, a good place for someone who is fragile. What do you think about that? No, I don't think it's a good place for anybody <laughs> fragile or strong. <laughs> no, I don't think that's a good industry for, especially back in the 70s when 
drugs were starting to appear and I don't think anyone had the knowledge of what they could do to you and how long you could be drawn into that lifestyle. So, no, I don't think it's a good industry for anybody, for self-esteem, for for anything, whether you're doing it just for drugs or doing it to support children. or I, I think, yes, it's definitely not a good industry. And, yes, there was a lot of drugs around there in the cross. As Sally Ann's younger sister, did she shield you from her lifestyle as it was evolving or were you aware of it? No, no, she didn't shield me. I left home a week after I was 16 anyway. No, we were very aware of what life was about. You were tough girls, River Show girls, weren't you? Well, I think we had to be. You had so many things put on you. First from being Jewish girls that went to Mariah College that weren't, you know, dark-haired and that we were very um, different-looking. Plus, we had no mother. Plus, we were doing things like modelling in our lunch hour or modelling after school. And and she had a very... People either really loved her or they didn't understand her. She must have been intimidating, I suppose, for the other girls. I guess you probably both were. Well, I think we both had to stand up for ourselves most of our life. There was no one there to stand up for you or to, to nurture you or to teach you how to, to do a lot of that stuff. My dad was very involved in his own life and, and working and we were left very much on our own from a very young age. So, yeah, and I think when you're out of home, I think she left home around 14, 15 maybe. I, I know she ran away at four, 13, 14. Life was was like that. You had to defend yourself. You had to look after yourself. It's just so sad to me that you two beautiful young women um, felt that way so early in your lives, felt all alone in the world so early in your life. Well, I don't, well we did have an auntie. But she was pretty... Uh, pretty different for the times too. I don't know if, yes, I suppose we were alone as young girls. There was never a, a, even Dad's second wife wasn't a nurturing sort of woman towards us at all, especially not towards Cyanne. So I suppose we were exposed when she left and we were back on our own again most of the time. I suppose we were exposed to more than most girls at those times I wouldn't say today I think today people see a lot more young girls see a lot more of what's going on in life whether it's good or bad but back then in the early 70s it was it was unusual compared to other girls you girls were pretty world wise yeah compared to where we grew up in that sort of if we'd grown up in a different area you know not so um um, middle class, upper middle class, maybe if we'd grown up in, in places like Redfern and that, where I'm sure a lot of girls struggled there and young boys. But in our circle of people that we knew, yes, we were very different and it was a struggle. Does it surprise you that the, the, the sort of fairly posh Jewish college that you both attended really claims Sally Ann now? I've read a number of articles where they claim her as an old girl and um, a wonderful whistleblower who's finally getting the respect she deserves. Yes, it does, because at the beginning, I don't think they felt like that at all when it first came about. But it's like, um, what do they call it? It started off as the tall poppy syndrome, you know, like I don't think people understood what the corruption was like and what she had to face to, 
do what she did until it started opening up more and people, the general public realised what was going on and how entrenched it was and how dangerous it was back then. I mean, the police and criminals ran their own race and they usually ran it together, playing tag teams. It's very hard to believe now that people didn't think police were corrupt back then. But back then when Sally Ann first made the accusations, they seemed wild to a lot of people. Yes, I'm sure they did. <laughs> I think everybody knew that, that, like from Squeezy Taylor days and those, you know, around Taylor Square and all that, there's police. Look, with, with power brings corruption. Power and money bring corruption. But I don't think anyone realised how deep it was, unless you were like her or the criminals that were involved around that time, realised how big it was and how the, the distinguishing line between criminal and, and lawmaker, there, I don't think there was a line. I'm not saying every police officer or every criminal was involved with each other, but I'd say in Sydney, from what I saw, and Melbourne, they were one of a kind. Yeah. And that's what she didn't like. That's what upset her. She was she was very staunch in her thoughts. You know, you're either this or you're that. You can't be a lawmaker breaking the law and, and playing both sides. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah, she what she that, didn't like. She made that point very clearly to Ray Martin on that famous night, didn't she? She said, you know what, I've been paying yes. the police and I've, I would continue to do it. But famously, she said, when they become judge, jury and executioner, someone has to stand up. Yes, exactly. And and I I just think she's incredible for what she did. Yeah. And I don't even think I realised how deep it was at the time. And I'd seen a lot of what was going on, but I didn't realise how corrupt it really was and how dangerous it was. I wasn't involved like my sister was. She was much, much more entrenched than I would have ever been. But the realisation of how, what it was like, I think it surprised a lot of people. And I think it keeps surprising people that it's still going on. It's just more undercover these days. It's just a, they just keep it as a better secret. Where do you think her lack of tolerance for bullshit was born? I mean, that's what it seems like to me. It seems like she's just called out the bullshit. Definitely, that's that's she was that way. This is who I am. This is what I'm, how I'm having to live my life, and, and this is these are my rules, and these are how you know she knew who she was, and she believed in honesty. Yeah, I know that sounds strange because she lived on the other side of of what society says is honest, but. She was very forthright and very honest about herself. Where did your mum go? When we, were, I think I was about 18 months old and Sally-Ann was 18 months older. Yeah, so she was about four and I was nearly two. So tiny. What, why did that happen? Why did your mum Yeah. Leave? Oh, I think they were just too young. Yeah. She was only 17, I think, when she had Sally-Ann. So she was just too young. And I don't think she was a maternal woman at all. I met her again when I was about 50, 52, and I just had no connection with her at all, at all. She just wasn't maternal. She had, she married after my dad and had another two children, and I think she basically left them with the father as well. Wow. Did, did she ever meet Sally-Ann when Sally-Ann was a grown-up? 
Um, they connected when I was about 13 or 14, when I was at boarding school down in Moscow. She somehow got in contact with Cyanne when she was over here because she lived in the States a lot of the time, when she was over in Sydney. And uh, they ended up getting an apartment together down in um, in Rushcutters Bay. And, of course, she filled up her head with all these, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And she came home one Sally Ann came home one day and she was just gone again. Oh. So, yeah, you know. Her mum left her twice. Mm. Yeah. Mm. She never had anybody that really stayed with her. Do you know what I mean? My father never really understood her. He just did what, what he had to do as a father. You know, he fed us, he clothed us. I think he tried to love us the best he could. But we never had anything maternal in our lives. Do you think Sally Ann's relationship with Warren Lanfranchi was a special relationship or was it the sort of circumstances of his death that made it more important to her? Oh, look, I'm sure she had really strong feelings for him and and, uh, when you've grown up like that, I think you're forever searching for love and and, uh, what's the word? I can't think of the word, but, you know, you're searching for someone to to give you purpose and, and, and to make it all seem that it's right. And I don't think she ever found that. So by the time Warren was murdered by the police and a week later Sally Ann appeared on 60 Minutes with Ray Martin to accuse the New South mm. Wales police of very deep-seated corruption, did you, did you know she was going to do that? No. Mm. No. A couple of days beforehand, but not... Not when she obviously made the decision in her, you know, she might have told me two or three days later that this is what she was going to do. What did you think about that as an idea? I thought, if I just figured if that's what she needed to do, she needed to do that and that she should do it. She was very strong about it too. She was very, it, it wasn't right. It didn't sit well with her. In retrospect, it seems that she was signing her own death warrant when she made that decision. Did it feel like that at the time to you? Did it feel that serious? Not at the time. We all knew it was serious, but I didn't realise that they would pursue this for so long until they actually got her. I don't think any of us did. We all thought she was in danger of maybe, you know, getting beaten up or, or putting having stuff, you know, false charges against her or, or something like that. But I never thought it was murder. I never thought it would be murder. I don't think any of us did. Certainly five years later, by that stage, it must have felt as though it was over for all intents and purposes, did it? No. No? No. No, no, she never. I think just before she was murdered, she wrote a letter where she knew she was going to go, go. They'd been trying to get her for all those five years. So she lived in, in fear all that time or in uncertainty of what or how or what they were going to do, how it was going to happen. Now it just seems, she just seems like such an incredibly brave heroine, doesn't she? I think so. I think people have started to realise what she took on mm. and the depth of it all. And, and it wasn't just Roger Rogerson and one or two other policemen. There was a lot of them involved in all that. And a lot of them, I mean, I, I can remember working somewhere 
in uh, in the city in Sydney, and it was a bar that was right near the police centre in uh, uh, Elizabeth. No, um, I can't remember. And um, they used to come in there, and I used to get treated so badly that I had to leave. It was all that corrupt, all those corrupt police from in there were just, and that was probably two or three years after it. After Warren. Sally Ann had a daughter when she she died, uh, Sasha, who has Mm -hmm. gone on to uh, Mm -hmm. a career. I mean, I'm only, I've Googled Sasha, not expecting to find anything, but Mm. in fact, found a pretty high high profile uh, show business career. But I haven't been able to get Mm -hmm. in touch with her. Did you have much to do with Sasha after her mum died? Yes, quite a lot. And before her mother died, we were all the three of us were very close, but um, not in the last probably ten years. I haven't had much to do with Sasha at all. I think she holds a few um, bad feelings because she blames both of us for what happened in her life, which is which is normal. I think it's pretty normal to be resentful that she lost out on, on a lot of her childhood. As much as she loved Cyan and as close as their bond was, I think she still has resentment. What What was your lifestyle like in those last couple of years with Sally Ann? Were you... Oh, I don't but this is very... Well, no, I was living a different... Right. I was living a different lifestyle to Sally Ann. Uh, but I believe Sally Ann was using, and in fact, that was the idea on the night that she died, was that she thought she was going out to score... Yes, yeah, she was going out to meet Warren and Warren Warren Richards. Mm. So that was all. Of, yeah, she was using for sure. Well, I mean, that was her. Up? That was her crutch. Yeah, that was her crutch. That was her escape. You know, I'm sure if we all had more information back in the seventies about what drugs were about and what they did to you we mightn't have stepped up so easily. Oh, you know, in the 70s, cocaine and all that was, was you know, it was almost fashionable. Yeah, it's not like you see with today. I know this is going to sound crazy all these years later, Deborah, but I'm just so sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry you lost your sister. Oh, I am too. But, you know, with life comes death, and that's just what life is, you know. And when that happens... You've got to grieve and then you've got to go on, move on and change what you need to change in your life and and get to where you want to be in your life. I have photos of my sister all over my room when we were kids and some fabulous photos she had done when she was about 17, 18 and just all through our lives. My dad was a very keen photographer, so I have the most beautiful black and white photos of us. You've got no idea. So, you know, I ne- I'm, every day I think of my sister at some stage in my life. I've got photos all through my bedroom. So, you know, she'll never be forgotten, but I can't. I grieved when it happened, but I had to go on and then change and get in my life where I needed to be. And that takes a long time sometimes. Yeah. Are you happy in your life? Are you living a, a happy life? I am very happy, very happy, very healthy, very focused woman. I, I know who I am at last. I appreciate where I've come from and I appreciate where I've got myself to. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm sure she'd be very proud of you, little sister. 
oh, I'd love to have her here. I'd love to see what she would be like if she could have got to where she needed to be in her life, you know, and just got clean and and felt the joy and the love of, of what you can do for yourself. Life is so easy if you just play by the rules, and the rules are really simple. What you give out is what you'll get back. What you put into it is what you'll get back from it, you know? And it's just a shame that she, we both got lost on that drug track back in the 70s and, and didn't get time to develop and find out who we were. We weren't encouraged as children to, to, to where do you want to go? What do you want to be? You know, like we were never asked that question. It was just hurry up and grow up and, and you know, get on your way. You know, so I think in the 70s when someone offers you, you're lonely and, and you, you don't know where you're going and someone says, oh, come here and do this, it's fun. And there's other people doing it and you feel like you belong to someone. It was very easy to fall into that and to feel like you belonged somewhere. It wasn't until you'd been involved in it in a while you went, oh, my God, how do I get off this merry-go-round? And it takes a long time sometimes. And then it takes a long time after it to 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 learn who you are and to to learn what your personality is and and your strengths and your weaknesses and how to work on things. Because you stop knowing when you use drugs. Your, your personality doesn't grow. Your mind doesn't grow. Nothing grows. So yeah, I'd love to see her now. I quite often think, I wonder what she'd be like and and what we'd be doing as sisters and. You know, but I'll never know. I can only, I can only appreciate what I had her for and how long I had her for, and 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 be proud of that. That's my sister. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be proud of. Thank you so much, Deborah. Mm. That's my pleasure. Nice to speak with you. Thank you to our guests today. Deborah Crivershow and Duncan McNabb. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.